Welcome back, or if it's your first time here, then thank you for joining us. This is The Doula's Guide to dot 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 with me, Meg, also known as the Dungaree Doula. It's a podcast where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth and parenting. My aim is to share unbiased information alongside a bit of friendly chit-chat to ensure that you head into parenthood feeling confident and excited for what's to come. If you're new to the podcast and would like to know more about me, then go and check out the very first episode for a little introduction and a big chat on hypnobirthing, and then the following episodes for some great birth and parenting preparation. If you love the podcast, you can now leave me a little tip to say thank you via Buy Me A Coffee. The link is in the show notes. A huge thank you in advance if you do this and a huge thank you to all the people who have already left tips on there. Before we begin, I also wanted to remind you that I now have a pre-recorded online course, which is a full antenatal and hypnobirthing course that you can sign up to and work through in your own time. There are over 30 modules to work through. Each is made up of video content and then they all come with PDF downloads. There's hypnobirthing MP3 tracks on there, relaxation tracks, journaling prompts, birth plan templates, birth partner checklists and so, so, so much more. It's only £37, which I think is an absolute steal, but to celebrate the launch of season two of the podcast you can use the code podcast for 20% off just head to the show notes or click um click the link in the show notes even or head to my website which is the dungaredoulet.co.uk and head to the online course page and while you are there you may also see that there is now a second course that you can buy which is called hypnobirthing essentials so this is a shorter course this one's just 20 pounds and this is for you if you've maybe taken an antenatal course already but you want to know more about hypnobirthing it's for you if you're at the end of your pregnancy and you haven't got much time if you maybe can't afford a full course if you've done hypnobirthing in a previous pregnancy and you just want a refresher then this is for you and that one's just 20 pounds and is a shorter version but it's still really good and you still get loads of stuff extra with it as well so go and check that out that's my preamble um, <laughs> my little ranty intro bit um, and now let's get into the actual episode so this episode I thought I would talk about something a little bit different, I guess. It's all of those things that people tell you to do at the end of your pregnancy. So things that, you know, might make your labour easier, things that might bring labour on. And I'm going to talk to you about what the evidence says, what the research says. And I'm also going to tell you my opinion on all of these things. I'll tell you whether I've used them, whether I've had clients who've used them and things like that. So we're going to talk about things like raspberry leaf tea, um, eating dates, having sex. We're going to talk about eating pineapples, eating spicy food all of those old wives tales that you may have heard about or may be news to you and hopefully you'll come away from this with things that you want to try and things that you do not at all want to try (laughs) so let's get into it So the first thing I'm going to talk about is drinking raspberry leaf tea and you may have heard of this, you may not have heard of it, I'm not really sure, I think because I'm in like this little echo chamber, this birth world bubble, I kind of just think that this is something that everybody does and actually, you know, it's probably not, maybe it's just kind of a weird thing, maybe this is new for you, Um, but if you've never heard of it, drinking raspberry leaf tea is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) It is drinking tea that is made out of the leaves of the raspberry plant so the raspberry bush. Um, You can obviously use it yourself if you are lucky enough to have a raspberry bush in your garden or in a family member's garden, then literally just go and take the leaves and steep them. Not yet the wait until you get to the end of pregnancy. We'll talk about when you can use it in a moment. But you know, if you have a raspberry leaf tree, 
tree, bush, um, anywhere nearby, then, you know, just go and take a load of the leaves, wash them, dry them out, harvest them. Um, obviously, you know, the majority of us do not have access to this. I'm very lucky in that my mum and my grandma both have huge raspberry bushes in their gardens. So I'm constantly just taking all of the leaves off of their bushes and drying it out, you know, giving it to clients and also using it myself because it's really good. Um, I'm not pregnant. It's really good to use um, during your period as well. So it's really good for our menstrual health. But <laughs> I will get to the point in a minute. If you do not have access to this, you can just buy it. Um, you can just buy um, packets of it or you can buy it loose if you like to have loose leaf tea if you like to have herbal tea and things like that so you can buy it in places like holland and barrett you can buy it online there are brands that do specific pregnancy ones so there's one called um what's it called hot tea mama they're like a, they do a specific pregnancy tea and um, but you don't need a specific pregnancy tea they're quite expensive you can just get it from anywhere really any sort of health food shop um or get it online just make sure that you're looking what's actually in it because sometimes it'll say you know raspberry leaf tea and then you look and it's actually something else like as the majority ingredient and then like there's a lesser percentage of actual raspberry leaf in it you want something that's got a high percentage of raspberry leaf in it otherwise it just completely defeats the point so have a look what's actually in it I always would recommend you know just buying it loose leaf if you have the access to make it up all you really need if you've never had loose leaf tea before is you just need like a reusable tea bag, which again, you can just buy on Amazon. Uh, you can buy on Etsy, you can buy anywhere online, you can buy it in refill shops, or you could get like, you know, a little teapot that has something in the middle that you can steep it in. Um, you can even boil it on the stove and then just like sieve it out. There are loads of ways to um, do it loose leaf if you would prefer to. But if not, you can, yeah, you can just buy the tea bags as well. So it is, yeah, exactly as it sounds, raspberry leaf made into tea. <laughs> and there's actually been quite a bit of research on this. I mean, there's not loads of research. There's not like large, large scale studies, you know, like there are into things like, I don't know, inductions and things like that. Um, because there's just not the incentive behind doing a lot of research into these things. I've probably said this quite a lot on different episodes, but you know, if there's no money to be made in the outcome, then they're not putting a lot of sort of effort and energy and time into researching it because there's not a big payoff. So the reason why people say to drink raspberry leaf tea is because there's something in it. I don't know how you say it. I think you say fragrin or fragrin or something like that. <laughs> there's fragrin or fragrin or however you say it. Probably someone who doesn't have a rough whole accent will be able to say it better than me. The fragrin I'm going to call it the fragrant, I don't know, in the tea, helps to strengthen your uterus muscles. And obviously, if your uterus muscles are stronger, then the contractions are probably going to be stronger, you know? That's like the theory behind it. And it's not going to work this way for everybody. Drinking raspberry leaf tea is not like a miracle cure that's going to make sure that you have like really strong uterine contractions or anything like that. But it can help to strengthen your uterus muscles, which can only be a good thing, right? And there are not really any risks to taking it. If you've got a threatened preterm labour or something like that, then, you know, the advice would be to not take it because you don't want to, you know, bring on any contractions, make things stronger than they need to be if you're going to be having like a premature labour or anything like that. But if you have no risk factors for an early labour, threatened preterm labour or anything like that, and you're not allergic to raspberries, obviously, then there are no risk factors to taking it. So I always think with raspberry leaf tea, the reason I'm like a bit of an advocate for it, I guess, is that it's not harmful. It's just a nice drink. 
it's not, like I said, some magic thing that's going to ensure that you have an incredible labour because nothing is. But, you know, there's no harm in trying it, right? There's no adverse effects in trying it. So, yeah, the fragrant can help to strengthen your uterus muscles and studies have shown that this can lead to a shorter second stage of labour. So the second stage of labour is the pushing stage. So this makes sense. If our uterine muscles are stronger they can probably push our baby out a little bit quicker. So yeah, people studies have shown that people who regularly drink raspberry leaf tea at the end of pregnancy actually have a shorter second stage of labour. And also that statistically, it led to fewer interventions in birth. And again, that makes sense because if you're having a shorter second stage of labour, you're less likely to have an intervention because interventions are generally suggested for a couple of reasons. You know, one, if baby's um, heart rate seems to not be coping very well, if it seems to be fluctuating or if it seems to be dipping and not recovering as they would expect. Um, But then also generally um, interventions are suggested if your second stage of labour has been going on too long. So what they deem as being too long. So it makes sense that it would statistically lead to fewer interventions in birth if it's also leading to a shorter second stage of labour. And then there was another study, which is, again, it was very small scale, but it did show a lower rate of forceps deliveries in those regularly drinking the tea. And that's the exact same thing as kind of fewer interventions, because one of those interventions is forceps deliveries. So it led to a lower rate of forceps deliveries in people who were regularly drinking the tea. So... You know, you might not, you might not want to do it and that's fair enough. But yeah, it's one of those things that I kind of always feel like can't really hurt to try it. Like, why not? Give it a go. I drank it kind of religiously in birth pregnancies and I, you know, I'm not putting my like sort of easy, <laughs> easy births down to purely the raspberry leaf tea. But I do believe that it probably did have a bit of an impact. And if I were to have another baby, I would 100% do it again, just because I'm like, you know, I did it last time. I had good births. Why not do it again? So you can drink raspberry leaf tea safely from 32 weeks pregnant, but it's recommended to build up the amount. So from 32 weeks of pregnancy, so when you head into that third trimester, you can drink one cup a day. And then from 34 weeks, you can drink two cups a day. And then from 36 weeks onwards, you can drink three cups a day. And like I said, you don't have two. Maybe, you know, you just consistently drink one cup a day or maybe you just build it up slowly. So it's one cup and then right at the end, you drink two cups or however you want to do it. But this is just the guideline of how much you can drink if you want to. And, you know, also it depends on if you like it or not. So not everybody likes it. It's I like it. It's a little bit bitter if you're not used to drinking herbal tea. Like I only drink herbal tea. I don't drink like I just call it normal tea. I don't know what the... I don't drink normal tea, the tea you put milk in, like builder's tea, whatever. I don't drink normal tea Um, and I don't drink coffee. I only drink herbal tea. So I think I'm more accustomed to like that weird, bitter, like leaf taste almost. But if you don't drink it regularly, you might find the taste a little bit weird. So what you can do is, I guess not so much now that it's getting... Um, a little bit colder but you might still want to is some people like to make up like a really big jug of it and then just put it in the fridge and just have it as like a cool drink and even with that like you could maybe put um some honey in it or something like that to make it a bit sweeter and the same with if you're drinking it hot so just make up like um make up a cup of it hot and then put some honey in it or some agave nectar or some sweetener in it whatever you want to do um to make it a little bit sweeter and hopefully help you enjoy it a little bit more if you don't like the taste i'm not really sure of any other recipes or things like that that you could do with it but if i do find anything i will have a look i'll pop them in the show notes and i will also as always pop the research um studies 
into the show notes too. But yeah, that's raspberry leaf tea. And in my experience, you know, I think probably all of my clients from the top of my head have used it. Um, and obviously not all of my clients have had easy, straightforward baths the way that I did. So like I said, it's not it's not magic. <laughs> um, but all of my clients that I've spoken to about it have said, yeah, I would use it again. So that's one thing that I do recommend if you fancy giving it a go and you don't have any of the risk factors that I mentioned earlier. Right, so the next thing I want to talk about is eating dates. And again, this is something that you do at the end of pregnancy. It's another thing that you might have heard of. It's another thing that you might not have heard of. But literally, just eating dates. <laughs> so eating six, like, regular smaller dates or eating three medjool dates. Is that how you say it? I don't know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> eating three medjool dates or six smaller dates towards the end of pregnancy. So from around 35, 36 weeks every single day and there are a few different reasons why you might want to do this and again this is another thing that I personally sort of support I don't obviously like force people to do it again I'm not saying it's not going to make or break your birth but it's another thing that I kind of I do advocate for I do think that again there's not really any reason not to do it it's not particularly risky to do it and it's just another thing that may contribute to your birth experience the one like where that it may be risky well not risky that's sort of not the right word but the one sort of scenario where it may not be the best thing to do is if you have any issues around like how much sugar you want to consume because they are quite high in sugar is natural sugar but they are high in sugar so this might be if you have gestational diabetes and um, you might want to like food pair and you know that's a topic for a whole other podcast if you have gestational diabetes I'm sure you know what food pairing is and um, so if you do and you're eating dates, then you might want to food pair them, or you might just want to miss it out completely. It's completely up to you. So there are some benefits of eating dates throughout all of pregnancy. So like this is, I know I just said, you know, eating like six or three from 35 weeks every single day, but you can eat them at any point throughout pregnancy and it's not going to do you any harm. And there are benefits to eating them. It's just, if you want to get into that set routine to sort of reap the benefits like the extra benefits then you want to do it daily from 35 36 weeks but earlier on in pregnancy um dates are really beneficial to eat anyway because they're full of fiber um, and we yeah we need a lot of fiber when we're pregnant um it can also help with constipation so many people when they're pregnant get constipated so eating dates can help with that they're also completely full not completely full <laughs> they're also full of potassium um which maintains fluid balance so this is incredibly important during pregnancy but especially if you've suffered from sickness so at the beginning of pregnancy um getting a lot of potassium can be super helpful so dates can help with that and um, they're also they're basically just like a pregnancy superfood they're packed full of nutrients and anti-inflammatory properties so they're really healthy they're really tasty well I think they're really tasty not everybody does I will talk about some alternative uses for them in a second because I know some people think that absolutely rank but I like them <laughs> so for me it wasn't a hardship eating them at the end of pregnancy but I know for some people it will be we'll cover that in a second but the other th reason why I want to talk about them is because there is a study called, I think, what's it called? The Effect of Late Pregnancy Consumption of Date Fruit on Labour and Delivery. And that study, it's from 2011. And again, it's not like 
a massive study. There's probably, there's e- well, there is, there's even less research on eating dates than there is on using raspberry leaf tea. But that doesn't mean that it's not helpful. It just means it's something that no one's decided to pile their money into, which is fair enough. Um, so this study states, it is concluded that the consumption con- consumption of date fruit in the last four weeks before labour significantly reduced the need for induction and augmentation of labour and produced a more, favor- more favourable but non-significant delivery outcome. So again, a small scale study, but it is really promising. Um, And yeah, there's no... Oh my goodness, I can only apologise if you heard screaming in the background of the podcast then. This is the reality of season two of this podcast. It is so chaotic, but I keep having to record while my kids are around because all the time that I have childcare is used for like teaching, do the client meetings, all the power hours that get booked in. So the podcast is always when I'm solo with the children and my two-year-old just bit my five-year-old. She doesn't bite people. I don't know why she did it, but she did. So if you heard screaming... And then apologies for that brief intermission. They're happy again now. They're um, playing really nicely downstairs. <laughs> so apologies about that. So back into it. Um, that's kind of all there really is to say about dates. It's just that, yeah, they're a really healthy snack. Um, there's promising sort of results from the one study that has been done on it and again it's one of those things that a lot of people have done a lot of my clients have done that I've done and I think that you know we would all just say yeah I'd do it again you know whether whether it helped or not we don't know for certain but yeah there's it's not a particularly risky thing to do if you do not like dates fair enough I know loads of people don't like them there are a few things you can do so you can blend them into a smoothie and you don't even taste them at all but there are two other things I recommend doing with them so one of them I have an Instagram post on and I will link it in the show notes it is literally putting like you just put quite a few different things on them but you put peanut butter on them you put some chocolate or some cacao on it you drizzle a little bit of honey over the top put some coconut um shredded coconut on it and they are so ridiculously tasty it is like it's just unreal how nice they are. I eat them all the time. Again, not pregnant, just constantly eating this little date treat because it's so yummy. So I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Um, and then there's also a recipe that is from... Oh, I can't remember who it's from now. It's either from the First 40 Days book or the Real Food for Pregnancy book, which are both incredible books. But I will find it and link it where you make sort of like a date um like a tray bake type thing and you melt chocolate over the top of it and um yeah that again is incredibly delicious so I will put links to those in the show notes and then moving on there are some other things that people often talk about doing at the end of pregnancy but they're not necessarily things that are to prepare so eating the dates and drinking the raspberry leaf tea are things that you would do to prepare for your birth right but then there are also other things that people say to do at the end of pregnancy to I guess kind of prepare for birth but more so to just like bring it on and these ones I care less for let's just (laughs) phrase it that way I care less for these I personally don't think that we should be doing things to bring on our labours. For our labours to start, you know, it's a very intricate process. Our babies need to be ready. Our bodies need to be ready. And if we're doing things to try and bring on our labours before our babies or our bodies are ready, we're not going to get the easiest or most optimal birth that we would have got if we just waited for many a reason um the most immediate one that springs to mind is that we want our baby to be in the perfect position for birth when we go into labor so we want to wait until they're in the best position for birth the most optimal position that they are going to get in so that their descent through the birth canal 
is the easiest is the most smoothest. If we're doing things to bring on labour before our baby has got into that position, we're going to make things trickier, right? And we, we could possibly cause things like really, really long early labour. We could cause quite painful back-to-back contractions as those contractions work to move our baby around. We could cause our baby to get stuck in an awkward position and things like that. So I personally advocate for these things um but I know for some people you know doing things to bring on labor earlier might seem like a good option and I know for some people you know if you know that your labor is going to be induced at a certain point because you've made that decision no one can tell you you have to get induced at a certain point but for example if you have a medical condition or anything like that and you sort of made that decision to um induce your pregnancy say at 40 weeks or at 41 weeks and you're getting super close you're like a day or two before that you might want to start doing these things to bring on that labor and I you know I completely get it so let's address some of those things that people might start doing to bring on early labor and talk about if they actually work or not so the first one is having sex I'm pretty sure we're allowed to talk about sex on podcasts right yeah we definitely are I was on social media they're very funny I know you're not allowed to talk about sex you can on podcasts so we're going to talk about sex sorry if that makes you uncomfortable feel free to skip this part of the podcast if you do not want to hear me talking about having sex <laughs> but basically when you get to the end of your pregnancy you might hear maybe even sometimes midwives suggesting it I've experienced of midwives suggesting this to clients um, and things like that saying you know um, at the end of pregnancy if you have sex it can bring your labor on and it's not really true it can't as far as we know it can't bring on labor unless you were already having like labor sort of signs so you might not even have been aware that you were having them but if your body was already sort of getting things in motion if you was maybe having really mild background contractions maybe if your cervix was already started to thin out and efface if all of these things were already happening and then you had sex, that might boost things. It probably will give things like a little extra boost. And that is for two reasons that we'll go over in a second. But if you are not, if you're nowhere near ready, it's unlikely, very, very, very unlikely. We have no sort of data, no reason to believe that it brings labour on. But certainly if you're already in those very, very early stages, it could give things a little boost. The reasons why, there are two reasons why. So the first is that if you're, I mean, this is only if you're having unprotected sex. Again, sorry if this is too much for some of you, especially if you're listening to this on like your commute to work and you're like, come on, it is too early for this talk. (laughs) Apologies. Um, But if you're having unprotected sex, then in semen, there's prostaglandins. So human semen is like the biological source that is presumed to contain the highest prostaglandin concentration. And prostaglandins help to ripe and soften and thin out our cervix, right? And that's what needs to happen before it starts to dilate. It needs to um, it needs to ripen, it needs to thin out, it needs to efface. So prostaglandins help to do that, right? So if you having unprotected sex with a man and then their semen gets onto your cervix and the prostaglandins in the semen interacting with your cervix could make it ripen a little bit and you know this is when we talk about having a stretch and sweep what um, midwives are trying to do when they give you a stretch and sweep is to um, stimulate prostaglandins to be created at the site where they are needed so at the cervix so it's a similar sort of thing right like they're just you're getting more prostaglandins at the source, at the site where they're needed to ripen the cervix. So that's one way that having sex can sort of 
help if you're already in labor but yeah it's not it's not going to be enough to kickstart your labor if you know your cervix is completely closed it's like it's really far back your body is just not ready to go into labor yet it's simply not gonna start it out um and then the other way is that you know if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast or you've done any birth preparation you will know that for our uterus to contract those contractions are stimulated by the hormone oxytocin and it's really super important it's like one of the major factors to drive our labor forward so what oxytocin is, is it's also known as the love hormone and we get it in abundance when we feel really loved and we feel really close to somebody and we feel really safe and we feel really relaxed. All of those things are hopefully how we also feel when we're having sex. So if you're having sex with someone that you love, hopefully you are in a calm space. Hopefully you are in somewhere where you feel relaxed. Hopefully you are somewhere where you are undisturbed. So you're going to feel really loved and you're going to get this massive surge of oxytocin. And then if you have an orgasm, that's when you get like peak levels of oxytocin so if you're already in those early stages of labor and maybe you're not quite sure yet or maybe you do know and you're just you know doing it anyway like that's fine sometimes people do um you're gonna like really boost it up a notch by giving yourself this massive massive boost of oxytocin right so that's why people talk about having sex towards the end of pregnancy it's not necessarily going to bring it on but these things you know might sort of help it out a little bit if it's already started or they could have an impact on when you do go into labor because you know if your cervix has already been ripening from having those prostaglandins if your oxytocin reception receptors have already been you know working like overdrive because you're getting loads of boosts of oxytocin all of that stuff's you know it's not it's there's no risks involved is basically what i'm trying to say just like with the raspberry leaf tea just like with the dates there's no risks involved unless you know there is some sort of risk that means that you shouldn't be having sex all the time at the end of pregnancy, then that's fine too. I don't know what that might be. If there is, do not do it. And again, this is kind of one of those things where I would never say to somebody, or, you know, you should do it. And it's not even something that I advocate for. Like I talk to my clients about the raspberry tea. I talk to them about the dates because they might not know about it. I don't tend to talk to them about having sex just because it almost seems slightly inappropriate to suggest first and foremost but secondly because you know if you want to do it you're going to do it I do not think that you should be doing it just because you think it's going to have a bearing on your labor because that's not going to make for an enjoyable experience right you should only be doing it because you want to you should not be doing it because you think it's going to make your pregnancy or your birth better because it kind of just completely defeats the point but the reason I'm mentioning it here is because it is something that is constantly brought up as something you know oh do this at the end of labor and you might have an easier um you might bring on your labor it might be easier like you know midwives say it when you start going overdue oh you know go home and have sex that's gonna help and it's kind of like mm. you it's helpful to know the reasons why but it's not something that I think we should be putting loads of pressure on ourselves to do. You know, if you're up for it, great, go do it, have a really great time. If you're not up for it, know that that is also really normal, especially if you're like 40 weeks pregnant. You deserve it now. You're really tired. You've got a huge bump. Like, <laughs> do not feel like you need to go and have sex all the time. But there is some studies around it. Um, so there's one that's called Sexual Intercourse for Cervical Ripening and Induction of Labour. And the conclusion of that was um it, it just says like and again i will link these below it said there was a one study of 28 women's so absolutely tiny and it had very limited data but it did say that um um sexual intercourse at term has been associated with earlier onset of labor and reduced need for induction at 41 weeks gestation and again like is this because these people would otherwise have needed to be induced at 41 weeks gestation i think that like, that brings up questions of its own because unless there is you know 
a medical necessity to induce that 41 weeks gestation could we not have just let these people get on with their lives and carry on you know I don't know but anyway I will leave the links to this and a few other um studies on well they're not even really studies they're just like small research papers in the show notes as well if you do want to read more about this so I will stop talking about sex now um (laughs) and we'll talk about just the last couple of little things that are actually bullshit <laughs> that you might hear about um so the first one is eating pineapple again some of you will have heard of this some of you will never have heard of this and be like what the hell are you talking about um but some people will say you know you need to eat pineapple and that's going to stimulate a uterus contract that's going to start um start the contractions off and this is simply not true so this is based on the fact it's just an old wife's tale that basically says that if you eat loads of pineapple there's this thing in it called bromelain I cannot say these words, bromelain, bromelain, I don't know, (laughs) and that that could trigger your labour to start, but actually this thing, I'm going to keep saying its name, is found in the core of a pineapple, like no one's eating pineapple core because it's disgusting, I absolutely love pineapple, but I'm not eating the cores, and that also if we were eating the core of the pineapple, we would need to eat between seven to eight full pineapples and full cores, to have any effect on sending our bodies into labour, which is insane, right? Nobody could eat that much pineapple. Like I just said, I absolutely love it, but nobody could eat that much pineapple. Like you would burn your tongue off. (laughs) It would just be absolutely horrible to do that. And then it also like it suggested that, you know, that your stomach would just break down all of the enzymes in the pineapple anyway, before they even reach your uterus, before they could have any effect. So if you hear people saying, you know, eat loads of pineapple and you think, oh, I might just give that a try. Like, give it a try if you want to eat the pineapple because you like it but don't try and eat seven or eight to bring on your labor so even if you know you're at that point where you do there is a medical need to induce within a couple of days and you're like I want to do all the things I want to like I'm gonna have loads of sex I'm gonna have reflexology I'm gonna go get a massage I'm gonna blah 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 blah, and I'm gonna eat pineapple like it's not eat the pineapple if it's gonna make you happy don't eat the pineapple to try and induce your labour because it's not going to (laughs) work. And I'm sure you was all expecting me to end on this one, but eating spicy food, which is also absolute bullshit. Like, just (laughs) completely bullshit. Like, I'm sure, like, some people listening to this probably know people or have heard stories or have, like, hearsay or friends of friends who have said, oh, I get a really spicy curry, and then the next day I went into labour probably just coincidence if you've ever heard of that actually happening to someone it's probably that you know your body was about to go into labor anyway or that person's was and you just happened to eat a spicy curry it's not that the spicy curry sent you into labor it is more so just that you was going to go into labor anyway you could have eaten like the most mildest salad that night and you still would have gone into labor the next day (laughs) so like the theory behind this is that a really spicy curry can like stimulate your gut to get things moving um and generally like before you go into labor you will have like a clear out so basically you know you will like almost a lot of some a lot of people have like diarrhea or you'll just have like a lot of poo like your body's just kind of like clearing everything out like making space making sure that you feel like healthy and stuff like that um so that's that's kind of why people think that you know if you have a spicy curry it's going to do the same thing and for some people it will make that happen but it's not it's not going to stimulate your uterus to start contracting just even like thinking about those two things together sounds pretty 
I don't know. It just sounds insane, right? Like, how would you even make that link? <laughs> I don't know. So basically, there's nothing behind this. Like, And you hear it all the time. I remember in my first pregnancy, so many people, because I went overdue, were saying to me, like, oh, just eat loads of spicy food. And I like spicy food. I was eating spicy food anyway. And it, it didn't make any difference. And I was just eating it because I liked it. So this is, again, one of those other things that it's like, you know, if you like spicy food, like, eat it. Don't eat it if you think it's going to give you a funny tummy there, because that is not what you want as you're heading into your labour. But, like, if you like spicy food and your body's used to it carry on eating it if you don't like it and you're not used to it don't eat it it is as simple as that but it's not going to have any effect on your labor it is absolute rubbish and they're like the main things that I wanted to speak about because I think they're like the most popular and there is other ones like I just mentioned briefly there reflexology but I'm going to do down the line um, an episode on sort of complementary therapies during pregnancy and how they can impact your um, pregnancy and your birth and reflexology will be covered in that so I'm not going to talk about that here but I just wanted to talk about you know raspberry leaf tea and dates and then about like sex and pineapples and eating curry what an absolute like if you didn't know what this podcast was about you would be like that is five incredibly random things to talk about on a podcast (laughs) but I feel like I've managed to make it work um, I hope that it's given you a bit of clarity around these topics and let me know if you're going to give any of them a try, if you're already trying them, if any of them have worked for you. I'd love to know your opinions. So, you know, you can leave a review, you can send me an email, come and hang out on Instagram where I'm at the Dungaree Doula and let me know over there. If you have any ideas of other things that I haven't spoken about um, around this topic, then again, I've made a post on Instagram I will make a post on Instagram about this podcast episode. So come and let me know on there what other things I haven't covered and I will, you know, maybe cover them on Instagram or in another episode or something like that. And that concludes this episode. I hope it's been helpful and interesting. And if you'd like to discuss any other aspect of your pregnancy and birth in more detail, then you can book in for a power hour with me, which is a one-off session to get clarity on anything within your circumstances, anything around your pregnancy or your birth or your postpartum for just £50. And you get a follow-up email full of resources, full of signposting and going over, recapping everything we spoke about in the power hour. So I will pop the info for that in the show notes. And remember, whilst you are there to check out all the links from everything that I've mentioned in this episode as well. If you have any more questions, come hang out on Instagram, as I just said, where I'm at the Dungaree Doula, and let me know if you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please stick around, like, follow, and subscribe, or even leave a little review if you don't mind. It's very, very helpful. Speak soon. See you next week. Bye.